Amen, amen. You guys may be seated this morning. Thank you for joining us this morning. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm grateful you guys would be with us on this beautiful summer day. As we begin in our time of worship through the Word, I want to encourage you to continue to remember another way we can worship, that is through giving of your tithes and offerings. We bring this up not so that we can continue to pay our bills or do anything like that, but so that we can continue the mission that God has called us to, to proclaim and demonstrate the good news of a God who has come to seek and save the lost. And so I want to encourage you to continue to give to support the mission of Holmes Avenue. This allows us to do incredible things like support Operation Christmas Child, to proclaim the good news of the gospel, and to do so many other things that allow people who are far from God to see, hear, and respond to the good news of Jesus. Now, as you have probably surmised, uh, it is still summer, so therefore we are still in our Summer in the Psalm series. We'll be continuing with Psalm 100 today. As you also are aware, we are getting near to the end of the Psalms. We are getting higher in numbers, right? We are going to wrap this up at some point, but today we are in Psalm 100. And as we look at this, as we're going through the book of Psalms, we are looking at this human experience, this relationship that we have with one another, with God. And really one of the interesting things about the book of Psalms is we get to not only see who we are in light of this, but we get to see our response to both God and the situations we find ourselves in. See, this psalm is an interesting psalm, the Psalm 100. Uh, We don't quite know who wrote it. Uh, Moses may have written this, but the psalmist, we'll just call them that, is writing of their experience with God. See, the psalmist, he's addressing his experience of worship of the Lord here, and he's describing it in what I would say is some pretty memorable language. He describes his worship as joyful, full of gladness. He describes his worship as being full of thanksgiving and praise. Now, I would submit to you that as we're looking at this, the psalmist is not just describing his worship here, but... He's trying to clue us into something that's significant here in the text. Maybe you're like me and you look at this and you ask this question, why is he describing his worship this way? Not that there's anything wrong with it, but if you look throughout this passage, it builds to verse 5 and you have to ask the question, so what does this have to do with God's steadfast love? What is the point of all this worship and how does this culminate in God's steadfast love? Well, I would submit to you as we look at this that the only way that the psalmist is able to accurately write about these things is because he has first experienced God's steadfast love. You see, he has found joy. He has found gladness. He has found thanksgiving and praise only through his experience with God's love. You can see it on the screen, but the title of today's sermon is The Meaning of Life. I think there's a direct line between this title and between this section of Scripture. And I would just simply ask this question of you. Have you found the meaning of life yet? You see, in our world today, so many are striving to find the meaning, the significance of life. Some define it by pursuing power. They have power and authority over others, over the world, and they think that they have found meaning and significance. Others pursue it through money. Others pursue it through earthly pleasures. There are many different paths people take to try and find meaning and significance in their lives. 
The truth is, is that every culture, every person has asked this question in their lives. You and I have asked this very question. What is the meaning of all this? Why are we here? What's our purpose behind these things? We've wondered if what we do matters. We've wondered how we got here and ultimately what we're supposed to do with this thing that we call life. If you've asked this question before, I believe that I have an answer for you today. I want you to look at this quote that's going to come up on the screen. It's from Dr. Jonathan Haidt. And he writes in his book, The Happiness Hypothesis, that just as plants need sun, water, and good soil to live, to thrive, people need love, work, and a connection to something larger. Now, what's interesting about that quote is that Dr. Haidt is an atheist. Yes, he is an atheist, yet he fully recognizes that we have this innate desire. There's something about us that we want to have this relationship with something, I would say someone, who is bigger than us. You see, I would submit to you this someone is God. And it's this relationship that brings meaning to us. See, this relationship begins with trust in him. We believe in him. We seek repentance before him. We receive forgiveness from him. You see, it's this trust that leads us to worship him and brings meaning into our own lives. You see, I believe that as we look at Psalm 100, what we ultimately find is the meaning of life is found through worship. If you would. Would you stand with me as we read God's word, Psalm 100, verses 1 through 5, beginning with verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. You guys may be seated. As we begin reading this, our first point, the first thing that I think we have to address is our worship is ultimately our life. Our worship is our life. Look back at verses 1 and 2. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. So the psalmist here, he's beginning with words that are clearly speaking to worship. It's very obvious that that's what he's addressing. And yes, I think it's true that he is speaking of physical worship, but there's something deeper he's trying to address here as well. Now first, let's address the physical side of worship here. He's pointing to this reality. When we gather with the body, we are to sing together. This joyful noise is not defined as good and excellent singing like we've heard today, but rather it is singing with all over the one who has saved us. It's singing with this perspective of wrestling with who God is and what he has done in our lives. You see, it's this idea of worship being defined by the one who is being worshipped, not the worshiper. 
This means that if you're tone deaf like I am, every tone deaf note that you sing is a pleasing sound before the Lord. It also means that every perfect note you might sing is a pleasing sound before the Lord. You see, the psalmist here is pointing to this idea that worship is not necessarily about what we bring to the table, but about our posture when we get to the table. Now he continues on and says that we are to serve the Lord with gladness. This tells us that we have the opportunity to offer blessings to God by serving his people. Sometimes it's taken that we must serve, but that's the, that's the wrong connotation. It's that we get to serve. You see, this is significant because our service is a part of our offering before the Lord. It's not that God needs us to serve him. Rather, we are being true, real image bearers before the Lord by serving others. Consider this thought. God has shown his love for us in the greatest of ways by serving us, by sending Jesus to serve us. That familiar refrain from Mark that Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. The language he has come to serve but not be served. This is what God has done as an example of what service looks like. That he would go to the ends of the earth to pay for our debt. What better way can we consider to serve the, to display the love of God than by serving others and proclaiming the freedom we found? Now, these are important things for us to wrestle with as we gather together on a Sunday, right? These are significant things for us to consider, yet... I want to point out that I don't believe the psalmist is just addressing what happens here on a Sunday. He's given us some guidance and encouragement that what we do here matters, yes. But there is significance to our lives that is found beyond just the hour and a half we're here every week. You see, verse 2, I think, gives us some direction that our worship is indeed to be found in all of our lives. All of our life is an act of worship before the Lord. You see, this word serve here, we can read that and just go, well, he's talking about service, and this is good, this is healthy. Yet, there's a deeper theological meaning here. You see, in the Hebrew, as we go back into the original languages, this word serve here is also found in the book of Genesis. And you might think, that's a neat fact. It's significant for us that when it's found in the book of Genesis, it's used to describe the work that Adam and Eve will do in the garden. Now, you might think that's a fun fact. We're playing Bible quiz today. The significance behind that is here. There's not a casual usage of this word. You see, the psalmist is drawing our attention to an idea here. This idea is that all that we do in our lives is a part of our worship of God. Consider 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What does Paul say there? Whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. See, Paul is building out this idea for us that worship isn't just when we sing and gather together like this, though this is an element of worship, but worship is all that we do for the glory of God. 
This might seem like a stretch, perhaps, but consider the greatness of God. If God is who he says he is, if he's created the universe, if he's created the world and put things in place, if he is all-powerful and all-knowing like we believe, is he really worthy to be limited to worship just an hour and a half a week? Is he only to be worshiped when we come to church or go to a Bible study? No, we would not dare say that. We would not say that. No, he's only worthy of worship for two to three hours a week. No, indeed, he is worthy of worship with our entire life. So this would tell us that our worship is to be embodied by our whole lives. John Piper has a quote that maybe you've heard before, but he says that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. You see, what he's getting to here for us, he's rooting down to the bare minimum. We are only able to offer true, pleasing worship when our entire lives revolve around him and his glory. You see, the psalmist, he really does desire us to sing loudly and clearly when we gather to worship. He wants beautiful music to come forward. He wants people to sing loudly in celebration of what God has done. He wants people to proclaim boldly of the God that has redeemed them. But he understands something. He understands that we cannot worship God loudly here in this room if we're not worshiping him away from this room. We cannot worship God loudly in this room if we are not worshiping him when we are away from this room. You see, this is why I've pointed us to the idea that what we are offering in worship, our worship indeed is our life. You see, it's pointing to this idea that we're to get up in the morning and we're to set our gaze upon Jesus. We're to fill our hearts and minds with the truth of God's word, using it to fuel us to worship him with all that we are. We're to then enter our day seeking to proclaim clearly of all that God is for us through Jesus. See, it's building out this life of worship that then allows us to come into his presence singing loudly. It's these things that allow us to joyfully proclaim his goodness. We see ultimately that our lives find meaning not when we're defined by our purposes and pleasures, but when we encounter God. The psalmist would make it clear here for us, the way we find joy and meaning and significance in our life is not through pursuing these earthly pleasures, but setting our eyes upon the heavens. By setting our gaze upon Jesus Christ himself, that is where we find joy Gladness, thanksgiving, and praise. That is ultimately where we find satisfaction for this life. Now, as we consider that, if this is true, this means something significant for our worship, right? This ultimately, I think, means to us that this means that worship is not about us, but it's ultimately about God. And that leads us into our second point, that our worship is about God. Look at verses three and four. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. 
Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. You see, as we continue in our study here, we see that the psalmist is making a turn. So he's no longer addressing our contribution to worship, but rather he's beginning to look at the subject of worship. I think it's very important for us to remember that worship is not about us. It's about God. That worship is not about us. It is about God. Yes, it brings meaning to us. Yes, it does so much for us. It encourages us. It fills us up. It leads us to celebrate God's grace. It renews us. It restores us. There are so many things you can point to in worship that are good and it is healthy for us. But the point of worship is that we are not worshiping ourselves. We are worshiping God. Now we have to be clear that these things don't occur in worship just because we go through these motions of singing a song and standing for the scriptures and sitting at the right times. Those things mean nothing in the grand scheme of things. Why? Because our works are the ones that bring honor and glory to worship. It's the one that we worship that brings honor and glory to worship. You see, it's not our faith that brings these things to bear in our lives, that brings us fruit forth in our lives. It's the one that we have faith in who does this work. Therefore, the psalmist gets right into the nitty-gritty and he starts addressing the subject of worship. The subject of worship is indeed God. And this is why he starts digging into verse 3. He begins verse 3 with, know that the Lord, he is God. I think that this verse alone, this is the root of the entire passage. That everything springs forth from this, of the knowledge of who God is and what he has done. You see, once we know who God is, we can truly know who we are. We cannot tell our story in this world without telling the story of God. So what are we to know? What are we to know about God? What are we to recognize about him? Well, first, we're to know that the Lord, he is God. We're to acknowledge that God is the Lord of our lives and of the world. What does this mean? It means that he has all authority and power in this world. That means he has the right to work and to move things as he were to please that he knows better than us in all things, that if we're to trust that he is all-knowing, all-powerful, that means we are to trust with an open-handed gesture of, God, my life is yours. I trust you to do what you will. I think that's a huge statement of trust for us, right? It is hard for us to say, I will put everything in the hands of someone else. It is hard for us to say that that the outcome of my life rests not upon me and my work, but upon what the Lord might do in this world. Simply put, we're not people who are easily swayed to put our trust into someone else. Some might say that we are a skeptical society, at some point, the Facebook fact checkers will check that and you'll recognize that they may not believe me. 
Yet this is exactly where the psalmist begins our discussion about God, that we must begin with this idea of trust. You see, our worship starts with trusting who God is through trusting his word. How do we come to faith? How do we begin this journey of faith and trusting God? It starts by trusting in his word because it clearly tells us who he is. What does Romans 10 tell us? How do we come to faith? By the hearing of the word. And so in order for us to trust God, we must first begin with trusting in his word. You see, this is why the Bible is at the center of our worship time. It's not just because we like to talk a lot. Brian and I can talk about a lot of things. We can talk for an extended length of time. We do quite frequently, as a matter of fact. The point of this is not that we would talk, that you would think we're good speakers or anything like that. The reason that the Bible is at the center of our time because it is how we know who God is and what he has done. It is at the center of our worship time because it is how we are able to worship. The only way we can know God is through his word. You see, the psalmist is driving us to this truth, this thing we must understand. The only way we can be, we can truly know God is by being students of the word. The only way we can truly know God is by being students of the word. It's not enough to have a vague personal experience. You see, it must be defined by our specific personal experience with God through his word. Now, the psalmist continues with addressing how we are to view ourselves after encountering God. He says we're to know God, right? Why? What are we supposed to know about him? Well, as you continue in verse 3... He says, it is he who made us and we are his. You see, first he tells us that God is our creator and our king. God made us and we belong to him. I don't want you to miss these personal pronouns here, right? And for those of you that don't remember grammar, right? Personal pronouns. That's what we see as he. We are what? His. He made whom? Us. See, this language here is he's making sure that the psalmist is putting on display that when we talk about God, we can't tell our stories without telling the story of God. As human beings, we we simply can't express the story of who we are without dealing with who God is and what he's done. I know that as we encounter people in this world, as we wrestle with, with lostness in our midst, we see that there are many people who try to define themselves by other things. They define themselves by what they have or what they don't have. They define themselves by their job or their car or whatever it might be, right? You know people that you encounter, that you, they define their lives by something that is finite, fading, failing. At the core of this, if we believe that the Bible is true, we can't define our lives, we can't view our story through any other lens than it beginning and ending with God. That our story begins and ends with God. As Christians, if we're sharing our story, it's impossible to share our story without dealing with who God is and what he's done. 
as we wrestle with things like our testimony and celebrating the gift of grace that God has given us. Our testimony isn't intended to exalt our sinfulness or our actions in trusting Jesus. No, it's intended to exalt the free gift of grace that God has given to his people. It's intended to exalt the one who is the subject of worship, God. And so our stories must begin and end with God of who he is, what he has done in our lives, and how we have been transformed by the power of his grace. Now that's not all that the psalmist wants us to know. He continues in in verse 3. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. You see, what he's doing here is that he's affirming our relationship with the king. What we believe is that God is the sovereign king over the universe. It's his kingdom that he reigns over. If you don't like the rules in this universe, then you need to create your own and go inhabit it. That's the sum situation that we are dealing with. We, by God's grace, we are fortunate to dwell and live within his kingdom, within his universe. You see, this line here is intended to draw our attention to the privilege we have of being his people, his sheep. The psalmist is proclaiming to us that the king of the universe knows who we are. The king of the universe knows who we are. Consider that. The God who has created the entire universe All these beautiful things we see in space, the stars in the sky, the boundaries of the land and the sea, the intricacy of our world. This God who has created everything and all things knows you and I intimately. Is this not an incredible truth that a God who is that big, who is that powerful, who is that much under his control knows you and I? This should take our minds to passages like Psalms 23. We see this language actually being echoed in Psalms 23 as an encouragement. This should take us into the New Testament as we consider passages like Luke 15. So I think it's important for us to consider and to recognize that all of this, all of this is being done through the redemptive work of Jesus. See, we're only able to call God ours. We're only able to call him Father if we first call Jesus our Savior. If you've studied the New Testament for any length of time, you've probably come across Luke 15. In Luke 15, there are three different parables that are pointing to one singular truth. You see, this singular truth is that the God of the universe was not content to leave us wandering astray, looking for meaning and significance. No, this God of the universe sought us out. See, if you are familiar with those stories, each one of those passages is addressing this reality that he's got it all. He's got the 99 sheep, and what does he do? He goes after the one who has gone astray. He has the widow who's lost a coin and rather than write it off, she turns the house upside down in the middle of the night to find that one coin. And perhaps the most familiar one at the end of Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. 
It's how the prodigal son comes back and telling his father, if only I could be a servant in your midst, please just take me back. And his father says, you will not be a servant. You are a precious treasure child of mine. You are coming back not as a servant, but as a full-fledged son of mine. You see, God did not choose to just leave us wandering in lostness and darkness. No, he chose to come to us to offer meaning and significance that's only found through faith in him. Every parable we see in Luke 15 is about God reaching out to us when we're lost and wayward. It's about God offering grace, mercy, and forgiveness to his people. This leads us into verse 4. This is why verse 4 is in there. Because verse 4 reads, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. You see, we are able to come to him in thanksgiving because of what has occurred in verse 3. We've been reminded of who God is and what he has done for us. And that natural response is that we are to then come forth in worship, celebrating his goodness. See, this thanksgiving that is displayed here in verse 4, it's a display of gratitude towards God. As Sam Storms writes, he argues that thanksgiving always glorifies the one who is being thanked. We are able to praise and to thank God. Why? Because he is the one who has moved and worked in our lives on our behalf. How are we able to praise him? It's because of his free gift of grace. You see, we come to God with an offering of gratitude. Why? Because verse 3 is true. That if we know him, if we recognize that he is our creator, if we proclaim that he has done a miraculous work in our lives. We have reason to praise him and to rejoice. You see, because God is who he says he is, we have a reason to bless his name. Now, this Thanksgiving here is not just an expression of gratitude, though that is a part of it. You see, it also serves as an expression of the good news of Jesus. Look with me at verse 5. We're going to see that our worship is evangelism. Verse 5 reads, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. You see, the psalmist here ends with an encouragement of God's goodness and His love for us. And this language we see here is a pretty common series of of phrases we see in the Old Testament about God. He's often referred to as a good God. He's a God who's abounding in steadfast love. These are very familiar refrains to the people who are reading the Old Testament. To the people of Israel, they would say, yes, of course he is. We know these stories. We can tell you the story of Exodus. We can tell you the story of taking the land. We can tell you the story of David and Goliath. We can tell you these stories where we see the abounding goodness, the steadfast love of the Lord. Have you ever considered why that's such a people of Israel? Have you ever considered why 
This continually comes up in their midst. Why is statements like this just a part of their worship? You see, this is a catechism for the people of Israel. Just as we go through the New City Catechism to understand what the Lord is doing through the entire Bible, this is a catechism to remind the people of Israel of where their foundation is found, where their hope and joy is found. In the midst of trials and difficulties, they are to look back at this and remind themselves of what? The Lord is good. He is abounding in steadfast love and mercy You see, the foundation of joy for God's people here is that God always keeps his promise and his enduring love never fades. It's a constant reminder for the people of Israel that their foundation of joy, of hope, of satisfaction is not on their terms. It is not on things that they do. No, the foundation is that God himself will always keep his promises. That God's enduring love will never fade, will never fail, will never fall short. You see, it's this joy that's given to us by God. It's this foundation, this hope we have that serves as an apologetic, as an example of the good news that's found through Jesus. That this allows us to anchor ourselves in the midst of this world. To have hope, to have joy, to have satisfaction, to have meaning and significance in this life. Here's the truth. If our joy, if our hope, our meaning and significance are based on earthly things, then what happens to us? We get caught in the pendulum of emotion every single day. If our hope in this life is based on money, then this economy must have you in the dumps. If our hope in life is based upon power, then your circumstances dictate how you feel about the world. If your hope in life is built on earthly pleasures, then the second those things are taken away, what do you have? You have nothing. See, simply put, if we find our joy, our meaning, our satisfaction contingent upon these earthly things, we'd be fine one moment and then drowning the next. If we're willing to be honest with one another, we might confess that we already tend to live this way, don't we? We have a hard time finding our joy in this world, don't we? We have a hard time keeping our eyes on what brings us meaning and significance. It's hard in this world. As the the waves toss us to and fro, our eyes get off the ball. Why does the psalmist end here? Well, he ends here because this is an encouragement to us because he knows how quick we are to forget this truth. He knows how easy it is for us to get swept under by the waves and to take our eyes off of Jesus. I want to end with a quote from J.I. Packer. It's a quote from his book, Knowing God, and I think it's so fitting for us to look upon and consider today. It'll be on the screen. It'll be in the sermon notes as well, but I want to read it before you and Let this lead us to worship. 
You see, J.I. Packer writes, What matters supremely, therefore, is not, in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that He knows me. I am graven on the palm of His hands. I am never out of His mind. All my knowledge of Him depends upon the sustained initiative in knowing me. I know Him. Why? Because He first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when His eye is off of me or His attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when His care falters. You see, the psalmist ends with this reminder that the Lord is good, that His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations, because you and I need that reminder. You and I need that reminder that the Lord has never forgotten us about us. He's never been distracted. He's never taken His eye off of us. He has never failed to move and work when we need Him. You see, this is the encouragement the psalmist is giving us because confidence in a God like that in the midst of the storms and turmoils of life, that is an apologetic to the world that says our God is greater than anything it can throw at us. In the midst of hardships and difficulties and in the midst of despair and distress, God is sovereign, in control, and working in the lives of his people. My dear friends, if this doesn't give us hope, I don't know what will. Hope that there is one who is in control of the wind and waves. Hope that there is one who is sovereign over it all. And perhaps you're here like me and you're simply wanting to quote Spurgeon that I have learned to kiss the rock of ages when I'm tossed upon it. When you come to those hard moments and you are pushed up against that rock, cling tightly and be grateful for it. Perhaps you're here and you're saying that my meaning, my significance, the things that I anchor myself by are of this world. I find my joy, my satisfaction, my hope defined by earthly measures. And if you would continue being honest, you would find that those things have failed you time after time. There is an answer. There is hope that can be found. And it comes by not placing our assurance, our joy, our meaning and satisfaction upon earthly things, but upon heavenly things. It comes through trusting in the one who knows us, who knows us intimately, who is our great sovereign shepherd watching over us. My dear friends, it comes through trusting in Jesus believing in his word and resting in the assurance that he knows better than you and I. Perhaps you're here and you need that reminder. Maybe you're here and this is the first time you've heard that. For all of us, our response should be this, that we would look upon this risen Savior Jesus, calling out to him for 
forgiveness, for grace and mercy, for reminders and assurance that we are his, that we are his child, and that we together can celebrate his great name and find joy, hope, meaning, and satisfaction. Today, I believe that we have found the meaning of life. The meaning of life comes through Jesus. If you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we are grateful for you. We're thankful for the work that you have done in this world through Jesus. We're thankful that you have given us the opportunity to know what the meaning of life could be. You have given us the ability to find significance, meaning, to find joy, to find hope, to find satisfaction in this world. And it comes not through these perishable things that will rot and decay away, but it comes through something that is imperishable, something that is set aside for us in the heavenly places, something that will never leave us, never forsake us. Father, as we come to you, we ask that you would remind us of the finished work of Jesus upon the cross. That we could see him in all his glory. That we could experience the presence of the Lord today. That we could rejoice because we have found joy, hope, meaning, and satisfaction. Father, it is my prayer that you would soften the hearts of all who are here, who are listening, Lord that you would remove all barriers between us and you so that we might encounter you in your goodness, so we might worship you truly, so that we might proclaim you as our Lord and Savior. Father, we ask that you have your way upon us. Move in whatever way you would desire to move. And Lord, lead us to trust in you. Thank you for what you've done, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.